tuned in to Sci-Fi Fidelity, the podcast that brings you monthly science fiction television discussions and interviews. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US, and we are at Sci-Fi Fidelity. This is episode 30 for June of 2018. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and in this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity, we'll be talking about female genre showrunners that have caught our attention, and our show topics include a look at the Danish post-apocalyptic import on Netflix called The Rain, and a discussion of The Humans Season 3 premiere on AMC. Yeah, a couple of hidden gems there, and in fact, our interview also hopefully is starting to gain attention and come out from the shadows, and that's Cloak and Dagger on Freeform. And it's just a great, great show. And we got to talk to Joe Pekoski, the showrunner of that show, and he was a great interview. And so I guess we'll have some mild spoilers for the June 7th two-hour premiere, which as we're recording this is actually tonight. So if you haven't seen the Cloak and Dagger premiere, you might want to watch that first before listening to the interview. And Dave's going to spoil the crap out of the rain <laughs> because there are some spoilers at the end of that eight episode season, right, Dave? Yes, eight episodes. So definitely going to be getting into some of the end pieces of that show. And then the humans discussion is more of just an intro to season three. So if you haven't seen the season three premiere, you're probably okay. But if you haven't seen the first two seasons of humans, you might be in trouble. So if you want to avoid spoilers for those topics or just want to skip around, here are the time codes for today's topics. Female showrunners. 207. The Rain. 1235. Humans. 3757. Cloak and Dagger Interview. 5950. All right, and the discussion topic, spoiler free of course, is a continuation of our discussion last month where we were talking about showrunners who have run more than one show. And as we got to Michelle Lavretta, we realized, you know what, this list doesn't have very many female showrunners in it. Let's talk about them because now it's becoming an up-and-coming thing. And yet, as we went through our list and started putting it together, Dave, I started to notice some patterns, and I can't wait to talk about some of the ones we came up with. Yeah, and I think what we'll see, there there's certainly a lot of female showrunners on television shows outside of the genre field. So the, the ones we're talking about tonight generally have only show run one show. But obviously, as you alluded, that's going to change as we move forward. Oh, definitely. I think that some of the shows that have met success, including some of the ones we're talking about tonight, are going to set the trend and it's going to become more and more in this day of Me Too, we're going to see some <laughs> some rising stars in the field of show running. So, and of course, show running is a new phenomenon, as we talked about last month anyway. So who are you going to start out with today? Well, I'm going to start out with Melissa Rosenberg, who First off, in, in her resume, she was a writer. I'm not sure if she was the principal writer, but she was a writer on all five Twilight films. She also wrote three episodes of a show that I think is terribly underappreciated, and that's Birds of Prey, which was a uh, look at what happens in Gotham City after Batman leaves. And uh, of all the superhero shows that could be rebooted and revisited i think somebody should take a look at doing this one and that's of course a show that begs for a female showrunner with the absolutely yeah right but melissa rosenberg is known as the creator showrunner executive producer 
and writer of Marvel's Jessica Jones. And this is a series that many, including me, feel is the best of the Marvel Netflix Association. So I think now that she's got that on her resume, I I think she'll certainly be in in big demand. All right. Yeah. And I haven't actually seen all of Jessica Jones yet, and I certainly haven't seen Birds of Prey at all. So that's definitely a showrunner that I I definitely need to check out some of her work. But one of the showrunners on my list that we are both very familiar with, Dave, is Marissa Tancherowen, who is actually married to her co-showrunner, Jed Whedon. And I think that's the pattern I was referring to, because you have one that's in that same boat. But what I didn't know about Marissa Tancherowen in her history before she showran Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., of course, with Jed Whedon is that she has an association with the Whedon family going back a ways, including having played Kilo on Dollhouse, a very short lived appearance, of course, by that particular member of the alphabet family in that show. And she also worked on the Avengers with the Whedons. So she's definitely in the family. In fact, she even co-wrote Dr. Horrible's sing along blog. And if you have the DVD of that wonderful show, She sang a song on that commentary track, which was affectionately known as Commentary, the musical, about the scarcity of non-stereotyped roles for Asian women. And that really spoke to me in terms of how she combated that stereotype as the executive producer of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. by casting Chloe Bennett and Ming-Na Wen. Yeah. Now, you mentioned Dollhouse and, you know, Wayne and I are on season two on Sci-Fi TV Rewatch and she and Jed wrote a number of episodes for that series. I believe it's even three on season two. So in addition to playing Kilo, she also had a a significant role in in the writing of that show. It's so cool. So I was excited to find out all those details in my research. All right. Well, let's go next to Lisa Joy, who is the co-creator of HBO's Westworld. She's also a director on the series, a writer on the series, producer, And look, of all the genre shows that are really, I think, on everybody's radar, Westworld is one of them. I mean, one of the shows that you and I, in the course of our podcasting and our work with Den of Geek, people are just so excited to talk about it and have been waiting. Now, of course, we're nearing the end of the season. But again, her fingerprints are all over Westworld. And she also, like... Marissa Tantron is married to her co-showrunner, Jonathan Nolan. Right. So I just think that's an interesting way to capitalize on that partnership. Right. Now, she also wrote for USA Network's Burn Notice and Pushing Daisies. While not genre shows, uh, they're pretty cool. Burn Notice is certainly a show that uh, I watched quite a bit. Bruce Campbell, one of the stars there. So I can't wait to see what she does after Westworld. Now, again, Westworld, I'm sure, is going to come back for a season three and Maybe her entire life is tied up in that show. We don't know, but what a great show. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and like you said, her influence is known just through the female characters on the show. And I think she definitely has a big part of why those characters are so successful. Now, one that goes back a ways, and I think that this executive producer paved the way for some of her successors, and that's Marty Noxon, who joined the staff of Buffy the Vampire Slayer Way back in season two, she aspired to be part of that show. And so she started out as story editor and slowly worked her way up to producer by season four. And then as Joss Whedon started to gain popularity, 
for other projects. She took over Buffy the Vampire Slayer in seasons six and seven, which actually were a little bit contentious. So she did bear some fan criticism over the years, but she should be credited with casting Amber Benson as Tara at the very least. And I do think that a lot of those episodes in seasons six and seven are, are misunderstood, but she since consulted on angel of course, and she's kind of known for her involvement with glee as well as a consulting producer. And now she's show running like crazy, mostly in non-genre work, including point pleasant and Dietland. But really I think everyone recognizes the name Marty Noxon. If, if you're even half of a Buffy, the vampire slayer fan. Right. And whether or not she's the first female showrunner, she's on the short list and it's a pretty short list. That's right. All right. Now my third showrunner is Jessica Queller, who's the co-showrunner of the CW's Supergirl. And she doesn't have a lot on her resume. I mean, she was a writer for Gossip Girl, which since I know nobody's listening here, I'll, <laughs> I'll go ahead and admit I actually saw season one of Gossip Girl. I think you admitted that on this podcast. <laughs> Did I? Okay. Co-executive producer for Blood and Oil, which is a, a show about the oil industry. And I believe it, I want to say South Dakota or somewhere where there's like a huge oil strike. And, and it sounds as if it's maybe a newer slightly different take on something like the dallas tv show of the 80s something along those lines okay and then also was co-executive producer for satisfaction so with the success of supergirl which is unusual in that it changed networks yeah we'll, we'll see well and this is interesting because I knew that there were two married couples on this list, but also Jessica Queller is co-showrunner of Supergirl. And it reminds me that like a person that didn't make the list that I wish I could have fit on was Stephanie Savage of Runaways, Marvel's Runaways. She's also a co-showrunner. So I still feel like there might be a little ways to go here <laughs> to get the women their own shows without having to be co-showrunners, especially since a lot of their partners are male, even if they're married, it still feels a little bit like, come on, <laughs> let's get them all the way in the door, not just their foot into it. But one person who really is solidly on this list has got to be Emily Andrus, who I almost felt like we neglected her by not having her on last month's list because she did show run two different shows. She was the lost girl showrunner for seasons three and four after Michelle Lavretta uh, left for other projects. And she was a writer and consulting producer for the first two seasons. And she didn't run the final season of Lost Girl. Michael Grassi ran season five. But she was a writer and consulting producer on Michelle Lavretta's next project, Killjoys, during its development and its first season. But then she moved on to Winona Earp. And that show is now going strong into its third season and the fans love this showrunner because she has really got her finger on the pulse of not only female characters, but also queer culture. And I think that's very important to her audience. Right. And she makes herself available to the fans and not only on the convention circuit, but social media. And it's almost as, you know, of course, Reddit has the ask me anything. I, I think she gives that sense to fans of the shows on which she works that you can ask me anything and I'll give you an honest answer. That's for sure. And in fact, she did say on her AMA that if she could work on something else after Winona Earp, 
she would still want to do something in the genre field. But she says something genre that's darker with a big budget, still female driven, but like epic lost meets Jessica Jones. (laughs) And I loved that answer that she gave because I could just picture her doing something like that. But that's a great way to end the list because, of course, Emily Andrews certainly is forefront in our minds, especially with Winona Earp coming right around the corner in July with its season three premiere. But we were very happy to enjoy a couple of shows, one of which is established, and we've actually talked about it before. Back in April of 2017, we talked about Human Season 2. But Dave, you're going to start off with a show on Netflix that is now our second show that is subtitled. And we're really enjoying this stuff. <laughs> yes. Now it's rain and it's uh, a Danish production. And now you mentioned subtitled and, and the thing with Netflix is you've got all sorts of options on how you're going to watch it. And I happen to give the English audio a shot and it's pretty good. So that's how I watched it. And oh, okay. Because sometimes it's just brutal. Some of the Spanish shows I'm watching with my wife at the moment, we just listen to the original Spanish audio and go with the subtitles because the dubbing is just so horrible. But I'm ordinarily not a fan of post-apocalyptic scenarios based on a virus that's gotten loose. But here... They got me right right away because, look, like any good science fiction we've talked about, it's got to be character driven. Each individual has to cope with his or her past. And they really left it open for a, a really nice season two. And of course, there was a recent announcement that the rain has been renewed for season two. We just got that news uh, a week ago or so, I think. Right. And right. I think both the rain and dark, which is the other Netflix import that we talked about, have characters of a certain age or actors of a certain age that are just amazing. Yeah. So what we've got for a premise is that a deadly virus spread by rain forces a brother and sister to seek refuge in an underground bunker, parting ways with their scientist father. And we get that opening scene when the father frantically comes to their high school and he just grabs them and let's go. And Simone's like, well, I have a project next period. And, <laughs> Of course, we can relate to that. But the two children, Rasmus, who he's about 10-ish, and Simone, 17-ish. I mean, we don't know exactly if she's a senior in high school, but, but about that age. And what we learn right away is that this virus has an almost immediate onset and death follows minutes later. So once the rain hits you, you're done for. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because usually if a virus hits quickly and you're dead quickly, it doesn't have a chance to spread. But this rain element, which is, is of course, scientifically ridiculous, but it's still a wonderful concept to have the rain start falling. And that's what causes mass numbers of people to die. And of course, they can get infected in other ways, as we find out later. Right. And there are so many mysteries sprinkled throughout. And, you know, we've got a core group of characters that we'll talk about during the course of the podcast, but we haven't really seen the backstory for all of them, which is great. At first, I thought, well, I wonder why they didn't really explore Martin's pre-virus history Well, hopefully they'll do it in season two. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So we find out that this company, Apollon, had bunkers throughout the world, implying that they knew what they were doing and that this was a deliberate act. So that part of the mystery here is, well, how did this happen? 
And we certainly get a lot of details along the way that Rasmus and Simone's father was the lead scientist on this project, and really he is at fault. But as they go through the series and go from bunker to bunker, the fact that they had these elaborately outfitted bunkers says they really knew the enormity and the danger of what they were doing because Rasmus and Simone are in their bunker for six years. Yeah. And I think this is a case of the scientists maybe having a specific thing in mind that might've been beneficial knowing that it was dangerous, but also others in the background that maybe had other plans for what they ended up with. But the bunkers, like you said, clearly show that they were planning for the worst just in right. case. <laughs> right. Now, Martin and Patrick find this, I'll call it a digital map. I don't know what else to call it, but it seems to show that they are in a quarantine zone so that they realize that they are fenced in. They encounter what I think most viewers assume are military personnel keeping you know, the peace, if you will. But we later learn, and they're certainly just referred to as the strangers by our core group, but obviously they work for Apollon, and it makes you wonder, well, what the heck is the military doing in all of this? And is there a relationship between the military and Apollon, or is this just science run amok? Well, especially since the military almost seemed to be duped into having to stay inside when they took their little nutritional supplements. Cause I don't think that's something they signed up for. <laughs> no. And so you have to wonder how did they get their recruits? These couldn't have been the cream of the crop. Right. And one of the questions that we ask almost from the start is what did the father know about the rain and the virus? And when did he know it? Because he claims he's the only one who can stop it. And it certainly does seem by the end of the season that he in fact caused it. So whether or not he did it deliberately, we're still not sure, but a lot of the season really is about staying alive. And look, we've all seen post-apocalyptic television series, whether it's the walking dead, whether it's Van Helsing, it's all about survival once Rasmus and Simone leave their bunker after six years because they're running out of supplies, but also they've been in this bunker for six years alone. All right. And it was a great narrative device that happened in the first two episodes. I really liked the premiere where they were able to fast forward six years really quickly, but at the same time, it gives the writers a chance to get right to the meat of the aftermath uh, without really having to dwell on it, but still being able to do those flashbacks that we saw in later episodes. And I think that really worked well, even though it seems obvious and other shows have done that, but I think the rain did it particularly well. All right. Well, I keep mentioning a core group and there are seven individuals that we'll talk a little bit about here. And, and of course, one is Simone, who is the older of the two siblings and she's got to be the mother because we go through and and again this is one of the agonizing things that i think all television fans go through and and that's putting up with stupid actions by the characters and, and in the, the premiere no less <laughs> yes early on the mother goes outside it's like really <laughs> but it does set up that narrative that she now has to be the mother and Anybody that's had a younger sibling, they don't really want you to be the parent. They're going to fight you. And, and he does at first. But 
once they get on the outside and at first it seems to be post rain, but the rain is still an issue. And you mentioned that there are other ways to contract the virus, one of which is stepping in a puddle. Yeah. And that really kind of puzzled me for a little while because I was like, meanwhile, they're just brushing across the, the leaves of the trees, which surely have some rain left on them, but it still changes throughout the season where the rain uh, isn't always contagious either. So it's kind of interesting. Right. And they've had a relatively sheltered upbringing even before life in the bunker. So they're really having their eyes open to what it takes to stay alive. And I think you could argue that a lot of characters in these post-apocalyptic shows have to deal with what it takes to stay alive and that sometimes you have to do things you could never imagine you'd have to do. And certainly Simone, her character changes to uh, finally at one point when she questions why Martin didn't just shoot and kill this one guy who was a perceived threat to their group. Well, and the flip side of that, I think Simone changes Martin and Patrick a little bit as well and, and softens their touch to where there is some humanity to pull out of the situation a little bit. And surely she's lived a sheltered life in her six years in the bunker, but maybe she's a reminder to them that they can still be merciful. Sometimes it comes back to bite her in the butt, but other times it, it saves them. Right now she knows the locations of the other Apollon bunkers. And in the one, they find a video message from her dad's boss who again, throws out that information that her father is the only one who can solve this problem. She learns that he apparently went to Sweden. So that's her plan at this point is is to try to make it to Sweden. And once she and Rasmus hook up with Martin's group, it, it really is a turning point. And this really does become a family. And I think that's one of the underlying themes in the series is is that with all of the chaos going on around it's family that gets you through and it may not be the family that you're bound by blood with but nonetheless it is family well not to mention it is amazing to me how quickly these characters are able to not only form bonds with each other but hook us as well as an audience i mean they really are all very strong likable characters even when they're unlikable, you like that they are the way they are. <laughs> yeah, okay, but I don't like Rasmus. But oh, really? He, <laughs> yeah, but he is important. And of course, one of the big questions, why is Rasmus so important? Her father insists that Simone protect him at all costs and tells her he's the key to it all. Now, of course, we learn at the end something about the meaning of that, but what was wrong with Rasmus as a child that his father employed this radical treatment that obviously worked because, you know, we see him at the beginning as, you know, as a little 10 year old. And now six years later, he's this 16 year old that's been lifting weights in the bunker. And, but of course has no socialization other than with his older sister. I assume he had some kind of immuno immunodeficiency, but yeah, it wasn't really clear, but I, I think it was, purposely vague right but what's so interesting here is that he is immune to the virus which he doesn't know at first but he's also contagious right he's like a carrier almost exactly and that's what the strangers are looking for they're looking for survivors they're looking for the one 
And it does seem by the end of the series that there really is only one, the one, and that would be, in fact, Rasmus. Well, it's funny, too, because clearly the father knew exactly what would happen as soon as the rain started falling, that they would want to exploit his son because his coworkers knew about his son's immunodeficiency disease or whatever it was. And so he squirreled him away right away and immediately started the search for others that might be immune so that he wouldn't have to sacrifice his own son. And of course that came to naught, but how interesting that he started out with that plan and never even considered allowing his son to be any part of any study that might save thousands of people. Right. Now, of course, Rasmus gets shot in the course of uh, the series and the wound requires a doctor, but we also though get a sense as that moves on that he has pretty good healing powers that defy nature. And once they find a doctor to treat him and she hears who their father is, it, it kind of sets off an alert and your father killed my children. And I think the, the one phrase that, that she utters that your father attacked nature and you know, when we get to the end, that pretty much is what he's done. Yeah. And like you said, there's so much more to explore in a season two, but like the fact that the virus could be born by the rain does make it very much seem like an attack on nature, because even though, you know, the earth is not affected by the virus the way it does for humans, the fact that nature is used as a vehicle for the virus just seems like an abomination. Right. And then, of course, he has that little fling with Beatrice, uh, his first sexual experience. And again, you mentioned about, you know, how you can contract the virus. Uh, I mentioned stepping in puddles. Well, I guess having sex with somebody that's contagious is going <laughs> to do it as well. Well, it looks like because of the what happened with the guard right before they took Rasmus off to the Apollon facility where he kissed him on the forehead. Right. I think it must be skin to skin contact, too, or at least bodily fluids would be my guess because obviously Rasmus touched quite a few people, but maybe not quite as intimately as he did Beatrice or the kiss on the forehead from the guard. So very interesting twist right towards the end of the season. Right now, I think it's fair to say that the two siblings are at the center of this story, but the group's leader, Martin, and he's one of the characters that we don't really see his backstory in season one. Hopefully we will get to see it in season two, but he is very competent as a leader. He makes the tough calls. He has the respect of the others. But as you said, he's still young himself and he does make some mistakes in that situation later on with Patrick. And on the one hand, Patrick essentially tried to kill Simone. He realizes that and banishes Patrick, but these are not normal times. And I think he comes to realize that. And uh, again, I thought that was a great scene towards the end when he does forgive Patrick and brings Patrick back into the family because of what Simone said. I mean, I think Simone is that influence on him that, that right. he needed to, to forgive Patrick. Right. But his feeling that there's life on the other side of the wall is I think something that's going to hopefully drive season two. Yeah. And I think they purposely keep a lot of what's going on outside the wall, a mystery, especially with that little conclave that happens at the end of the finale. Right now, Beatrice is a, a fascinating character. She's at first seemingly in a relationship with Martin that we later learn is 
pretty loose, but still she comes on to Rasmus later. And in, in the little bit of backstory we get with her, we see her taking, you know, one of these guys to what she tells them is her family home. And we later learn she's probably lying about both, but they're two different houses, so they can't both be her house. Yeah. <laughs> so we assume she's lying in both cases. Well, I think the main part for all these characters is that they're flawed and we're supposed to kind of embrace their flaws because Beatrice is kind of a relentless flirt and also will use anything to kind of be liked is the way I, I see it. Yeah. And, and speaking of being liked, I mean, Martin, he just is a leader and he probably just naturally took over. Patrick, on the other hand, we do get to see some of his backstory and he's this shiftless, unmotivated kid. He's smoking pot in his room. His father comes in and it's like, yeah, yeah, I was young once. I know what you're doing. It's okay. But also leave and never come back. Well, well, yeah. His father <laughs> gives him a car and he's kind of excited as any teenager would be that dad gives you a car, but he gives him a car so he can leave and don't come back. Right. And he probably saved his life because then Patrick went to the beach and got stoned and was sheltered from the rain. So that yeah, was a good backstory. Right. And we see that in a couple of instances for backstories that exactly that is what prevented him from being out in the rain. And he wakes to find everybody on the beach dead. And I think for him, more so than any of the other members of the group, there's this feeling of isolation that he's not really connected to anybody in the group. Yeah. Well, that's part of the character's evolution. And I think actually my favorite backstories were actually the ones you haven't mentioned yet, which is Leah and John, which I just think had the best self-contained storylines that not only informed their characters, but also just kind of had their own little tragic element to them. They are the quintessential innocence placed in this abominable situation. And, and Leah, she's got a overprotective mother who really doesn't want her to go to this party, but you know, whether it's the party of the year or whatever, she promises her mother, she's not going to drink. She's not going to do drugs, anything like that. And we believe her. She goes to the party and she's taken advantage of I me. Mean, I mean, she is raped. They just spiked her drink. And then not only did they do that, they videotaped it. They put it out on social media. They humiliated her. And you just can't imagine what that could do to her. Right. And just the reputation as being a church girl and corrupting her. That's all that the people at, at her school or wherever wanted to do. And again, saved by being inside the mansion or the party house, her humiliation saved her life. Right. But this guilt that she carries around, not unlike Jean's, is that she sees the others outside making fun of her and begs God to help her. And then the thunder and rain. Oh, right. <laughs> and they all die. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and then she calls her mother, who tells her she'll come to get her. But her mother obviously dies. And now Leah blames herself for her mother's death as well. And it's just heartbreaking. And when we get to Jean and he's flashing back to a meal that he had with a family, a mother, father, and a deaf daughter who really immediately bonds to him. They offer him a place to stay, 
And in, in fact, the little girl starts teaching him sign language and we think, okay, well, this seems really happy. What happened? Why on earth would he leave them? Yeah. Then the, the tragedy of it is it's because of these strangers who I think some people perceive as these thugs who take people off and they're never seen again. So they, they're not sure what's going on with the strangers. And so when they visit the family and are probably more rough than they need to be, if, if they are the same kind of soldiers as we saw later, then Jean just out of fear tries to keep the girl quiet and accidentally smothers her. And, and that I think was our first exposure to backstory for one of these characters. And that's when I really started to think, wow, this show is really going to take us on some journeys here. Right. Now, we've mentioned the strangers, and, and they are apparently on the Apollon payroll, and they are looking, as we've said a number of times, for the one. They're injected with something that prevents them from leaving the area in which they're to work, and they're looking for survivors that appear to be immune to the virus. But perhaps the most difficult to stomach is this cult group that they stumble upon. And I mean, right away, you know, they're wearing the robes and they're, they're nice and it seems peaceful and they come in, they get a shower, they get a meal. Martin as a good leader right away is distrustful of the group. And in fact, Martin makes a statement by refusing to wear the blue denim that the group gives them. And Again, a lot of these post-apocalyptic, one of the things I'm always thinking about is like, oh, my God, how many months has it been since they've had a shower? <laughs> yeah, and you didn't really uh, clue into that until they shy away from the shower. Right. But we learn that these people have drugs labeled Apollon so that there must be some connection here. And it's at this point that our core group starts to splinter because Martin wants to leave. The others want to stay. Although Simone wants to stay to learn more about the Apollon connection, Leah forms a bond with one of the older women who really an emotional scene where she gets Leah to take the first step towards forgiving herself for what happened. But then there's that scene. And I, I think, I don't know about you, Mike, but I, I definitely saw this coming. Oh, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Martin discovers that the meal being served is human flesh. And then the leader asks, well, who will be next? And, and this goes, you know, it's almost like Shirley Jackson's The Lottery on steroids. Because yeah. if you're chosen, you're the next meal. Right. Immediately sacrificed and put in the freezer so for, right. the, for the year. Which is odd to me, considering how many great vegetables they're able to grow there. And a lot of the other food that they have, I guess it's just not enough and they've made it into a ritual regardless. But it is an interesting little vignette in the middle of the season, considering what's going on, on out in the wider world. It's surprising that some of these ex-Apollon employees would have gone down this path in, in the six-year time period. Right. Now, she finally has the reunion with her father, and it's certainly not, I think, what she would have hoped for. And in fact, tells Martin that perhaps she was wrong suggesting they come here. So this whole idea of trust, now she has a, a pretty strong sense that she can't trust her own father. And he pulls her aside, tells her the truth about what they're doing and that they need Rasmus for the cure. 
But even that, we're not sure whether or not we believe him. Right, exactly. And it's very interesting to me that they would go to such extreme lengths to find someone else other than Rasmus to get a cure because he knows that if they get Rasmus, they'll kill him getting the cure out of him, you know, with the various spinal taps that he'll have to endure or marrow extractions. And to me, it's like, well, with all these people dying, wouldn't you want to maybe just find another way to use Rasmus? That's a little bit less invasive, but I guess he just can't trust the process. And we can kind of see why some of his higher ups are a little bit more unforgiving. Right. And then, you know, we get to that end scene where the core group finally makes their escape. But what we learn is that they were experimenting with some sort of cloud seeding technology. And somebody in this group has found a way to weaponize the virus, control the world with the most dangerous virus the world has ever known. And there we are. And so, you know, that it's going to be about that in season two. But I also found it interesting that the entire group wanted Simone to go through the wall because she's the only one who hasn't taken the nutritional supplement, which is that euphemism for <laughs> the nanites that are in their blood to prevent them from going past the wall. And she doesn't do it. And she convinces the group that they're going to make a run for it, go off into the middle of the area or maybe find a different plan to follow, but continue their survival here in the quarantine zone. So... It's a great show. Only eight episodes. They're not long episodes. In fact, they're on the rather short side in many cases. So if you haven't seen it, Netflix, The Rain, you won't be disappointed. That's for sure. And I love that this podcast is able to do this sort of thing for shows like this that would have slipped under the radar. And we definitely want to pull them out and bring them into the sunshine for people to discover and enjoy along with us. So I think that the show that I am talking about is something that is on people's radar, but because it once again is an import this time from the UK, it maybe isn't something that everyone has put in their to their regular rotation. Now, I think people that listen to this podcast know what huge fans Dave and I are of humans on AMC. And I just love how the show is able to reinvent itself each season and explore different aspects of that same theme of what if AI were to become conscious, especially if they looked like people in the form of androids. So this is a theme that obviously permeates Westworld as well, but I think humans in some ways does it a little bit better and in a little bit less esoteric way. And I think season three in this premiere that aired on June 5th at 10 PM on AMC and is thus far the only episode of season three to air in the States. It's just right back in it again. And I just am amazed at how they're able to keep it fresh and do something new with it each time. Yeah. And, and you know, you mentioned Westworld and, and certainly a show that comes to my mind is Battlestar Galactica with the Cylons that question you know, their place in the universe and, and the meaning of life and all of these things that really make somebody human, if you will. And I just love that you can take that idea and expand upon it in so many ways. And so we'll talk a little bit about what some of the new things are for season three. But what we know so far leading into season three is that, of course, society has become dependent on the use of synths or synthetic humans to make their lives easier, whether it be housework, 
physical therapy, menial work, manual labor, even sex work has been taken over in some ways by the synths. In fact, one of her main characters is from that field of work. And there was the originator of this technology, or at least one of them, Dr. Elster, who took things a little bit further with the synths that were in his life, as well as his son, Leo, who he kept alive through kind of a hybrid uh, version of the synth technology. So Leo's kind of like a cyborg in that sense. But this consciousness code started to wake up a synth here and there throughout season two, leading up to the finale, including uh, an abused factory synth named Hester, who in season two took a dark turn and injured Leo to the point that now he's in a coma. And now Mia killed Hester with a mind wipe that nearly took her out as well. And that's why Maddie's consciousness code was the only thing that could revive Mia and therefore she had to release it. Niska insisted upon it to save Mia, but it also of course woke up all the synths around the world. And so while season two followed a secret project at a company called Qualia in which synths in the shape of children were being manufactured to serve kind of like a niche market for infertile couples or those who have lost a child. And even one of the storylines in fact was with Pete and Karen who always seem to be off on their own little side plot. And that's still the case in season three. Pete took one of these children, these synth children, but died during the investigation into that morally questionable practice. And Karen, you know, not willing to allow this mindless child to continue existence, had him drive into a lake. But at the last minute, Sam, her son, you could say, became conscious and of course, now season three is going to definitely explore that a little bit more. And last but not least from season two, Laura helps Niska go on trial as a person for the murder of her client from the brothel. But the court doesn't see her as a person in the end. And even after bringing in Astrid, her girlfriend, to show that Niska does actually have feelings, she realizes that this whole trial process is a farce and escapes so she's on the run at the beginning of season three and Joe, Laura's husband wants to move into a synth free community. And we, that's where we find him at the beginning of season three. So that's the setup. But again, exploring the idea of child synths in season two was, was the flavor of season two. And now here we're moving on to what do we do now that all of them are conscious. <laughs> right. And, and I mean, one of the first things we see is the company's reaction to this catastrophic event, and that is to produce synths that are safe. And the way you can tell whether or not you have a safe synth in your presence is the color of the eyes. Yeah, the orange eyes. In fact, they're referring to them now as orange eyes and green eyes to distinguish the two. And in fact, the orange eyes also have distinguishable outfits that are very plain so that there's no question about whether they're human or synth. And they just want them to be tools now and not companions. But some of the new characters that show up in season three that I'm excited to learn more about. First, we have Agnes, who is an angry synth who's looking for justice. Uh, that character is played by Holly Earl. We've got Anatole, who's a uniquely spiritual synth, at least so far. That's what I hear that hasn't shown up yet in the premiere, but he does have a very calming presence and he seems to be sort of like the medical practitioner in the community of conscious synths played by Aqueli Roach. And then there's a new orange eyed synth that's coming later. 
Stanley, played by Dino Fetcher, who we'll learn more about. And also Neil, a member of the Dryden Commission, which Laura is preparing to join at the end of the first episode of season three. And Mark Bonner will play Neil, and he suffered his own loss during the initial massacre brought about by the Awakened Synths. And so there's going to be a dynamic there in season three as well. But it's very interesting because we are at the one-year mark at the beginning of season three, one year after what they are referring to now as Day Zero. And a lot of things are going on with many of the different groups. And if I could start off with two that tend to have their separate storylines, Niska and Karen. Niska is back with Astrid. In fact, she meets up with her at a unique place, it seems, among the establishments uh, run by humans. And that's a synth human bar that accepts both and is, is trying to be open. And it's got kind of like the gay bar flavor. And I think that's what they're going for in terms of people who are trying to become recognized in society despite their differences. And Astrid is now working as a bartender. And just as they're getting ready to leave, the bar is hit with a bomb. And you know this is going to be important to Niska, even though Astrid does survive the bombing. A lot of their friends died in that blast. And we're very surprised to learn that it wasn't carried out by an intolerant human, but rather by a militant synth. Very interesting twist. Right. And, and that's the interesting thing about Niska, because there is an element of militancy about her, but not to the level where she would use a bomb, or at least it doesn't seem that way. She seems more interested in gaining justice for the green-eyed synths, and those are the ones that are in this bar, because the orange eyes, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, they're purely tools. They would have no interest in going to a bar. Right. They are immune to the consciousness program, apparently. And the morality of that even is definitely going to come up in season three, where what do you do when you have a subjugated race that is just like the ones that just achieved consciousness? And I think Mia even points out that they're basically slaves and it's very offensive to see them in operation. But Niska obviously has a mission to investigate the bombing and it's great to see her back in action. Karen Voss is one of my favorite characters. And of course we did talk to Ruth Bradley on this podcast during season two. She is now trying to train her child, Sam to be like a human the same way she herself was trying to become human. She wants nothing to do with synth society. And I find her very interesting from that perspective. She wants to keep her secret and just be as indistinguishable from humans as she can. And she wants to teach Sam to do that as well trying to teach him to fidget and be perfectly imperfect as she puts it and has masked his electronic signatures. So no one can detect him. He's not allowed to let anybody see his eyes, his charging port. And certainly he can't let his skin get broken so that they see his blue blood. But I also like the dynamic between them as parent and child, because he's still a little stiff but he also is very much aware of the emotions that Karen is able to display a little bit more skillfully. But the big twist, Dave, she sends him off to school and the school is in Walteringham, which is the community that Joe lives in where there are no synths. They live a life away from having synthetic helpers in their lives. 
And that's a lifestyle choice if you ask Joe. But at the same time, I can't think it's a coincidence that Karen chose the one place where people wouldn't be looking for synths. Right. And I suspect that your parents were like mine when they sent us off to school way back in first grade. They definitely did not tell me that I should pick my nose. <laughs> yeah. Making him look more like a regular kid. So, yeah, that, that's a great start to that plot line. But, of course, a big chunk of this is dealing with Mia and Max in the rail yards. They're the only two left from that original group that are sort of leading the way for those that are now achieving consciousness. Max is in charge of 520 synths, he tells Niska later, and used to be a lot more. But what's happening is, of course, the human population has kind of put them in a reservation, you could say, if you want to go with that metaphor, <laughs> or a ghetto, I think, is one of the terms that's used on one of the talk shows. So you could also use that metaphor from history. And certainly those are very applicable to their living situation. But what I find the most compelling about their dire straits is that their power keeps getting shut off just enough so that they don't raid the supplies of the local human communities, but enough so that eventually, one by one, the synths start to die because they can't recharge and they end up with incurable system failures. And that just seems to be ultimately very tragic and motivates some of the more militant members of the group, including Agnes, who I mentioned at the beginning. But it also begs the question, then why not just kill them, if you will? I mean, the humans, that is. Why not just get rid of these 520 cents? Why go to the effort to keep them in this ghetto? Right. How many people are like Laura? Because so far we haven't seen any that would speak up for synth rights. And maybe that's what would keep them at bay. But you're right. There doesn't seem to be anything restraining them particularly. But maybe there's just too many of them. This is maybe one of many communities like this. Well, that's true. And Max, ever the optimist, thinks that humans will eventually accept them, despite what Agnes thinks as she smashes the TV during the initial tribute to the 110,000 humans dead. And she points out that there's over 100 million synths dead since day zero. And no one will acknowledge those. In fact, even when they talk about the bombing on the talk show, they only talk about the five humans that died. And they don't even mention the number of synths that were in the bar at the time of the bombing. But I like that there are details dropped into the mix of how Mia and Max are now living because they have to act as though they awakened on day zero. They can't let on that they were already self-aware because then they would get drawn into the investigation as to who awoke all these synths. And of course, Maddie Hawkins is at the center of that and, and her guilt that she's feeling is central for her character and will definitely play a part in her storyline going forward. Yeah. As one of the greatest mass murderers in history. That's right. But Max continues to preach mercy when they extend none forgiveness when they deserve none, which is a great speech that he gives until flash his girlfriend that we met in season two leaves for supplies at the local town. And you knew as soon as she got on that, that uh, milk run that she was doomed, <laughs> right? Well, yeah. And, and his speech that you just uh, mentioned, and, and he says, and when they knock you down, extend your hand that one of them may take it. And then in that scene where they are 
descended upon and beaten and sent to the ground and, you know, really near death. One of them, I'm not sure if it was her or the other one, you could see his hand slowly going up as if somebody take my hand, which of course they don't, because then we see them hanging inverted from a tree. Yeah. In fact, it seems like Anatole, the new character, who's the medical practitioner in the group, is going to be the calming force now for Max, who now is quite dejected at the loss of a loved one. And with Leo in a coma still, he actually makes the choice that, you know what? I can't protect these people. I'm their leader and I can't protect them. And so he actually takes the batteries from the life support system that's keeping Leo alive in order to save the next synth who's getting ready to die via power failure. Despite Maddie's protests, he takes them away because, of course, Leo is very special to Maddie as well. And what happens at that point? Well, the police storm the gates and that's the raid that's happening to investigate this bombing that happened at the bar in London. And of course their first target is this community of synths, even though they're peaceful. And I love how this episode ends with a very mysterious occurrence. And we're wondering where it's going to head. They're all kneeling on the ground at the police's behest, but Agnes, the quite militant one stands up. But that's all she does. She stands up and puts her hands back down at her sides. But then another synth gets up and they're telling him that get down or we're going to shoot you. But they're standing in defiance and then the credits roll. And I found that extremely compelling. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But we also have to follow Laura Hawkins and her family, which has always been an interesting dynamic. But uh, we don't get to see too much of Toby. But I really like the plot line that happens with the younger Hawkins sibling Sophie because she's at school having to listen to a presentation that reminds me of some of the ones that even in high school we do sometimes with netiquette or web safety (laughs) but now they're calling it synth safe how you should steer clear of dangerous green eyes and Sophie raises her hand what what about the nice ones (laughs) which you would think that people in general would make that qualification, but they're just basically categorizing them all that way. And when she's teased by her classmates, she ends up punching a girl in the face. And the conversation that she has later with Laura about it is just so logical. And you can see that Sophie is a smaller version of Laura (laughs) in that she's got a lot of fight in her, a lot of sass. And she doesn't understand her mother's admonition to stay silent about their part in all this from season one and two. She can't speak up because Maddie might go to jail if she does. But at the same time, if you can't stand up and you have to stay silent, then why can't she, you know, punch someone in the face? She, she, she feels powerless. And I think that's the same thing that Laura is feeling. Right. And and she's clearly wise beyond her years because she does, as you mentioned, she has a lot of information that could really make a a significant impact negatively on the family. And it's interesting too, for Sophie, because in season two, she went through the phase of pretending to be like a synth. And that was a whole theme that was going on in season two. You know, what if people wanted to act like synths? Of course, that's not a danger here in season three, but the talk show that Laura is on where she has to kind of be the voice of reason and speaking for the rights of synths clearly doesn't go well. And it's interesting that Mia is on the talk show with her because one of the things besides 
uh, having to keep their role secret is Mia is trying to do PR for since. And, you know, she's getting turned down by journalists because there's been some fatigue in the public of synth stories, but she's still appearing on talk shows and doesn't really get to say much on the talk show because of course the people behind the camera start to give the uh, cut sign to the host because the synth who did the bombing in London has claimed responsibility and that changes the dynamic quite a bit. But Laura then has to take the only route left to her and that's to join the Dryden commission, which is being formed by the prime minister of England to decide what they should do about this synth problem. But what I love about the ending of Laura's story is that she goes to Mia to tell her that this is what she's going to do. And Mia doesn't like it. Even though Laura has no other choice, she wants to work from the inside. Mia thinks that Laura has given up. And despite all that Laura and the Hawkins family has sacrificed, Mia points out, you know what? your family is still alive. So don't, don't talk to me about sacrifice and she's not wrong. Right. And it's also interesting, the level of radical behavior from Max, who almost a, a Christ-like figure to Niska, who is just so determined to bring justice to somebody like Mia, who's somewhere in the middle. Exactly. She's not going to give up, but she understands that there are ways to do it if we want the humans to listen to us. Right. And Mia took the opposite approach to Karen in season two, where she decided I'll just pretend to be like a normal synth, but then also find love in my life. And so it'll be interesting to see where Mia goes because she didn't have too much development in this opening episode, but there was a lot of really cool stuff in this. And one of the little points that I'd like to point out in closing is that there were some expressions of art on part of the, since did you notice this dave in the background i didn't i mean i see it in our notes but i didn't notice that <laughs> yeah and i got a little help from the den of geek uk reviewer who <laughs> wrote reviews and spotted one thing that i hadn't and that is that one of the uh, rail yard sentries is seen reading harlan ellison's sci-fi story i have no mouth and i must scream which is a story about an ai who tortures a group of humans so hopefully that's not a source of inspiration for him. But there's also a Renaissance-style fresco being painted in the background of one scene, and I did spot that in the background. But the one that had the most impact for me was being performed by one of our principal characters because Mia was at one point sitting at a table with her eyes closed, and she was drawing the coastline, presumably where that cafe was that she and Ed fell in love. So I just think it's interesting that art is starting to come into the culture. And I mentioned at the top when I read some articles and, and did some exclusive content from AMC for Den of Geek, I heard about Anatole, the character who is supposedly going to even explore religion a little bit this season. So that's something to look forward to because, of course, maybe that would be something that newly awakened synths would start to question. You know, what's the purpose of life and, and who created not just us, but who created the larger world that we live in All right and go back to Battlestar Galactica where the humans were polytheistic and the Cylons were monotheistic yeah who knows what they'll come up with yeah. <laughs> so I just think season three is off to a great start and it's no surprise I mean humans has been on our radar for a while and at the top of our lists among the other unsung heroes like travelers which we always sing the praises of as well so I really am, am happy to see humans off to such a great start and 
definitely going to be watching it closely as it goes through its, I think it also has eight episodes for season three as it normally does. So a great show that I hope you guys are out there are, are checking out. But one that you can get in on the ground floor of is just starting on Freeform. In fact, it hasn't even started airing yet as Dave and I are recording this, but we did get a sneak peek of Cloak and Dagger on Freeform, which is a superhero show. So I wasn't quite sure when I saw it on the schedule and decided to see if I could get an interview for whether I would like it or not. And I loved it. I mean, this is one of the best premieres for a superhero based show that I have seen. Would you agree, Dave? Oh, I would agree. And I think the biggest challenge for viewers out there is figuring out where the heck Freeform is <laughs> on your cable service or your satellite service. Yep. They're starting to work their way in with a bunch of different uh, genre shows. And Joe Pekoski is the showrunner of Freeform's Cloak and Dagger. And we were able to speak to him a couple of weeks ago about the premiere. And he was a informative and humorous interviewee. And so if you have watched the premiere, here's a little taste of what you can expect from the season to come. Welcome to Sci-Fi Fidelity, Joe Pekoski. Thank you guys for having me. This is exciting. And I have to mention up front, I'm very excited when I was doing some research for this interview that are you dealing with the Blake's seven remake? Am I hearing that correctly? <laughs> I had dealt with it a while ago. It is still kind of the one that got away that I'm trying to figure out how to make happen. <laughs> it is. I, I assume you're a fan of the original. Oh yeah. That is a show that is begging <laughs> for a reboot. I mean, how do you, how does anyone not just listen to the dirty dozen in space and just throw money at it? <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, Mike and I have been doing this for six years now, and it's a show that just keeps coming up and coming up. And like you said, it's just amazing that uh, it hasn't been remade. With Particularly with like the success of Doctor Who and how much people catch up on that, it just feels like such a good companion to it. It's, it feels like it's timely in in the age of prison reform and just the original show was lovely the actors were fantastic the sets looked like you could have blown them over <laughs> um but but it was just you know such a good story with such a decent drive and like you look at characters like avon and they're just such you know so ripe for like complex characters of the current tbh <laughs> So, well, you know, with comic superhero shows seemingly everywhere these days, I mean, how do you bring something new or different to the viewer with your characters and storytelling in Cloak and Dagger? I think the most important thing is just you definitely need to have a different approach. I think you need to look at superhero genre the same way you look at Westerns. It's a genre, but within the Western, there's so many different versions and so many good stories to tell. For starters, you just you try to find actors who look like who don't look like what you've seen before. And I think that's why I kind of was drawn to Tandy and Tyrone. They were young. One was a young white woman. One was a young black man. And they they were thrown in together and became kind of, they needed each other. And, and there's something interesting, I think, in terms of the fact that they've got a parody and a yin and a yang that I don't think you see in a lot of superheroes. There's usually a power dynamic. There's usually a sidekick. And these two kind of need each other and are equals to each other. Um, and then the other thing is just look and feel. From day one, I wanted this to be kind of like a Sundance coming-of-age movie set in the Marvel Universe. So um, I, I was very fortunate to get my first director of choice, Gina prince Bythewood, to direct the, her kind of shaky camera intimate feel. And, and I don't know if you guys have seen the pilot, but the idea was to kind of just 
give it a little more intimacy and ground it a little more than other superhero fiction. Well, yeah, we did. Yeah, we've we've both seen it. Yeah, Great. yeah, and it was wonderful. We enjoyed it greatly. But uh, at a recent convention, and I kind of agree with your characterization here, you called Cloak and Dagger a slightly slower bake, and that's a direct quote, with regard to <laughs> the origin story and the characters learning to use their powers, that sort of thing. But the premiere gets off to a pretty satisfying start. How did you get that measured pacing? Because I think you did it very well. I mean, I think part of it is I have a very short attention span, so I try to get in scenes late and out of them early, kind of like when I have parties to go to. I think the idea is to just try to tell the most exciting part. And I think one of the things we found very early is that the intercut allowed us to do that. So while you were doing kind of a slow bake in a personal story, when you're intercutting, for example, between Tandy robbing a house in Tyrone at a basketball game, you kind of can add some excitement and use a shorthand that allows you to move it along, but really stay intimate and small as well. And I think I also just to follow up on that, you had a little taste of powers, so it satisfies those people who want to see that in the premiere, but mm-hmm. it's going to probably be teased out one episode at a time, correct? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. And I also, it's it's honestly my favorite part of any, like, any genre origin story is kind of the discovery and then the fun and games. And if, you know, obviously superhero movies are great, but I always get sad that, like, that sometimes gets short shrift. And when you get to do long format television projects, it allows you to really take your time and earn it. And I feel like if we're fortunate enough to do seven seasons of Cloak and Dagger, you can go back to it and just be like, oh, remember when these were kids and they, they were just discovering it. And I think, in my opinion, you can't spend too long in there. Well, Now, you know, you mentioned the actors, and it's funny because uh, Mike and I, in our discussion this week, I sent him a message after seeing the pilot that, geez, too bad they couldn't find any young, engaging actors. And he got back to me, he goes, uh, are, you're being sarcastic i'm like because all four of them just simply dominate the screen every time they appear and i'm afraid to look at imdb because obviously that's spoiler heaven but will you continue to show snippets from tandy and tyrone's childhoods as the teenagers try to make sense of you know what each is going through I'm trying to figure out how to answer this without spoiling but let me let me just answer it with a rhetorical question Maceo, who plays young Tyrone, and Rachel did such incredible work. What kind of an idiot would I be if I didn't touch on them at least for a couple more episodes? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, Maceo in particular, he just killed it. Killed it. And- he's, he's awesome. And he was on Underground, so he's, uh, he's my good luck charm. So I might put him in everything I ever do. <laughs> All right. Well, unlike most superhero shows where what the powered individuals choose to do with their powers is up to them, Cloak and Dagger has this element of destiny, or at least I hear, because it doesn't necessarily show up in the premiere, but this pairing is supposedly coming about for a reason, sort of like Buffy the Vampire Slayer is chosen as the Slayer. What can you tell us about that? Um, I think, you know, I think part of the fun when we decided to shoot in New Orleans was the sense of magic and the sense of destiny, and there's the slight smell of stale beer, but like, there's just something special about that place. So as we started kind of talking about why these two would get these powers at the same time. It was just interesting to kind of link them together. I don't want to spoil too much, but part of the fun of setting up a season one over 10 episodes was to make sure they organically found out what their purpose was individually, you know, and without giving away too much for Tandy, it's 
one girl against an entire corporation. For Tyrone, it's one young man against the police force and kind of find a way that that turns into something bigger and slowly and hopefully in a very sneaky way coaxes the viewer into understanding that they're actually being set up for something really big towards the end. Yeah, and I mean, that's so much of the fun, you know, waiting for them to connect with each other, which we obviously know is going to happen. Yep, exactly. And it's it's so hard because every scene they're in is gold, <laughs> but you don't want to give everybody the whole Tandy and Tyrone show until you kind of have earned it and understand them individually. Now, Cloak and Dagger is going to air on Freeform, and while it's not Disney Family, it's not Netflix. And right away, I mean, the show has an edge to it, but is knowing how far to push boundaries something you guys have struggled with because of the target audience? You know what? I No, not at all. Um, first of all, I don't really think in terms of target audiences. I, I'll be angry if there aren't 50-year-old men watching this show or if <laughs> well, there aren't. there's some in your audience here. <laughs> Well, there you go. <laughs> um, I'm I'm hoping a lot of people kind of go to the Marvel brand, go to the Cloak and Dagger. The people at Freeform, as well as Marvel, have been fantastic in understanding what we're trying to do. Like, we don't try to be too gratuitous, but we do – we want to sell the world as a harsh place that needs superheroes, particularly New Orleans. And both Marvel and Freeform have been completely on board with how real and how gritty we want to do it. And granted, I'm the guy on Daredevil who, who – you know, had Vincent D'Onofrio show up and take off a man's head, you know, with a car door. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I do miss those days a little, but there wasn't a single thing in Cloak and Dagger where I tried to push the envelope where anyone kind of brushed me off the plate. Well, now you mentioned Daredevil, and one of the things that shows up that's vintage Marvel is Roxxon Corporation. And, you know, you mentioned how Tandy's going to be dealing with that, with her father having been employed there. And, you know, it's showed up in Agent Carter, it showed up in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and of course Daredevil, like you mentioned. Do you count on Marvel fans knowing certain things and appreciating seeing those recognizable comic elements as they give this series a try in addition to gaining new viewers? No, not at all. I think I think this is kind of one of those things that's a little added bonus to the loyal fans and the, the amazing people who have it within them to watch all of these shows. But I think Roxxon, for our purposes, is... is to tie into, you know, the legacy of Iron Man 2 and that I think there was like a little sign in Iron Man 1 that even teased it and just tie into the MCU saying this is all happening in the same place. But for our purposes, you know, again, with grounded, realistic storytelling, we wanted to tell the story of not necessarily an evil corporation, but an amoral one. And and having Tandy go up against a company that if they if they could make money saving your life they would it just usually doesn't work out like that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now you already mentioned Tyrone and, and his backstory with the police. So uh, you know police misdeeds figure prominently in setting his story up and addiction in Tandy's. Are, are you going to keep tackling social issues along the way as the story unfolds? Absolutely. I mean, I think we're not we're never going to be preachy, but I think something important here, we, you know, we're telling one of the first young black men who have their own, you know, in, in the Marvel Universe, we're telling the story of one of the first young women who have their stories. And it was important to me as some, someone who doesn't necessarily understand their situation entirely to try to understand it better. And so it was, you know, we tried to staff a, as diverse a room as you've seen in Hollywood and really tell stories about 
a superhero who had to deal with things that Peter Parker didn't have to deal with, and and a woman who had to deal with situations that that Tony Stark didn't have to deal with. So it was important to us, you know, to make sure that part of their lives were the complications and the difficulties that some people have that I don't have to deal with. Well, I like that you started off with a reversal of stereotypes, where rags to riches kind of reversed for both of them from childhood to teenagehood. <laughs> that was an interesting mm-hmm. trick as well. But also it kind of feels a little bit like Runaways from the uh, teenage standpoint. Are, are you, you're an admirer of that show as well and Stephanie Savage as well. Yeah, right? I mean, Josh and Stephanie are geniuses. They seem to to be able to do such entertaining television so effortlessly that I always say to Jeff, like, when are we doing our Runaways crossover? When are we going to do it? <laughs> I think we have a slightly, I think we have a slightly different tone, but, um, I love that show, and I think those those kids are all fantastic. And it's even just when the camera's off, they all seem very delightful, and they've been very nice to Aubrey and Olivia. Now, you know, I don't have a lot of experience with Freeform. I've seen a few episodes of Sirens, but I, I did notice that the pilot of Cloak and Dagger is just shy of 50 minutes. Are all the episodes going to be longer like that? Um, I think we no. I think I think they, they were very nice to make an exception to to our Gina and my a little bit overt appetite there. Um, <laughs> in general, they um, they are free form, so they're actually you know slightly more relaxed about how long episodes run. But in general, it's it's probably closer to about forty five minutes. All right. Well, we're looking forward to this uh, episodic content, but also kind of like a super long movie that you get to take your time with. And we've enjoyed the premiere so far, so we're looking forward to a lot more. So thanks so much, Joe Pekoski, for talking to us about Cloak and Dagger. Thank you, guys. I'm excited to hear what you think as we move along. Thank you very much. Thanks, Joe. Okay, and we're very grateful to, to Joe Pekoski for talking to us not only about Cloak and Dagger, but a little taste of Blake 7, a project which didn't quite get going, but also some praise for another show we talked about on this podcast, Marvel's Runaways and his fellow showrunners, including a female showrunner, Stephanie Savage, like the ones we mentioned at the top of the podcast. So it all comes full circle. (laughs) But it's such a great list of topics here that we had for June and summer is just getting started where a lot of shows are coming back and new shows are popping up. So we can't wait to see what the summer brings us. But that's going to be it for this edition of Sci-Fi Fidelity. We hope you enjoyed our discussion today. You can keep it going all month long by following us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter as Sci-Fi Fidelity. And in July, we have quite a few shows to choose from that we're still deciding on. But in the meantime, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you access it, whether iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. And we do take suggestions for future topics. In fact, I don't think we have one yet for July. So just let us know what you'd like us to talk about on social media. Or you can write an email to sci-fi fidelity at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next month.